are back and welcome back to one and all to the Flat Out RC podcast, a podcast where we talk all things radio control flight. We're talking radio control planes, helis and drones. My name's Andrew Sill coming to you from the land down under. Let's be honest, we talk a lot about aeroplanes here, uh, a little bit of helis, once in a blue moon drones, because most of us are plane enthusiasts. But Look, we've got another great episode for you. We've got a bit of an aerobatics guru uh, joining us, Stephen Gregg. Stephen Huggy Gregg. We'll learn why his nickname is Huggy. And the story's not as big as what you may think. But anyway, that's his nickname that he's been given by other people. Uh, but uh, yeah, so he'll be joining us. Look, so much has been happening. So let's get into it. Let's take a look at what's been happening around the traps. <laughs> I always like to start by plugging some events and one of the events that is coming up is the Jets over Monato event. It's a jet event. Jets are gone crazy. As I say, all roads lead to jets. Uh, and we've got some really good jet events around the country that are happening. You know, the Wang Jets event, of course, um, up in uh, Queensland, New South Wales area, you know, um, running events up there. And of course, we've got Jets over Monato. Uh, look, Western Australia, Please, start engaging with me. I don't know what's going on over there. Nobody sends me anything. I've, I've never had a guest on from Western Australia. I've tried to. They just don't respond. I don't know. They maybe don't like we people from the eastern seaboard. But uh, Jets over Monato's in South Australia on the 25th to the 27th of August, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So that's coming up. Uh, it's held at the Adelaide Model Aerosport uh, field at uh, its Monato field. They've got a 130-metre-long sealed runway. How good is that? They've got an operating flight height ceiling to 2,000 feet. That is massive. I don't know about you, but I can't fly model airplanes at 2,000 feet because I won't end up seeing them. Uh, camping is available on site at $10 a night. They're including hot showers and access to barbecue facilities, toilet showers, all that kind of stuff. You've got to be an MAAA member to go to this event. So the Adelaide Model Aerosport Club Jets Over Monato event, 25th to the 27th of August. Uh, jump online, do a search for uh, Adelaide Model Aerosport and uh, you'll probably find their website. But uh, get on board to that, 25th to the 27th of August. And the other big event that's coming up uh, quite rapidly is the Valley Radio Flyers uh, Shepherd and a Mammoth uh, event. is happening in the middle of September. I should know the dates because normally I design the flyer for them, which, oh, I've got to get that going. Just remind me. But anyway, uh, the entry forms are available on site now, on, on their website, valleyradioflyers.com.au. As my dog jumps around in the background, you probably hear its collar. Uh, save the date, 16th to 17th of September, 2023, 40th event, the 40th Mammoth Scale Flying this has become sort of the premier giant scale model aircraft event on the calendar here in Australia where the best of the best always gather. And they're always big. There's actually a size limit as to what size planes you can fly. So pencil that into your diaries and start getting ready for it. The 16th to the 17th of September 2023 at the Valley Radio Flyers Field in Karamomus, which is south of Shepparton. We'll call it Shepparton. It's a stone's throw away. So... Uh, those that are avid aeromodelers and active aeromodelers, you know all about this event. But uh, if you're coming from Queensland, New South Wales, South Australia, and we'll even have the Western Australians if they like um, to come over, 
to the Shepparton Mammoth Scale Flying. It is winter time, so here in Australia, not as many events are running. You'll see things pick up sort of September onwards, especially November. Uh, we'll get plenty of events happening. So now's the time to get all your model planes sorted and uh, up and running. Um, what do I want to have a chat with you about today? As you can tell, I probably haven't put a lot of thought to this, so I probably won't say much. But uh, look, we've got an aerobatics guy coming on, joining us, and um, aerobatics is something that I'm a big fan of. And we often see uh, a lot of a lot of a lot of people have a go and dabble in aerobatics at some point in time, and and especially the competition side of things. And and there's a recurring theme, and I think we discuss it in this with this, this week's guest again, is that if you compete in aerobatics or even scale events stuff like that you're now flying to a standard and it improves your flying so for anyone that is trying to become a better pilot here is my tip you don't necessarily need to turn up to an imac event or an f3a pattern event or a scale event to compete to become a better pilot but you can if you want to they're great look I'm not saying don't go to them because i know all the people that get involved with them probably say oh why are you discouraging people no no if you want to go and do that stuff, you're going to have a great time. I can tell you, I've been to many of their events and everyone's having a good time. But if you want to improve your flying, you can actually replicate what they're trying to do, which is uh, fly a sequence and see how well you can fly. Um, you can download the iMac basic sequence and the sportsman sequence for pattern. And with your scale events, you can go to your scale websites and have a look at what the criteria is and build your own sequence and stuff like that. And then, the sequence is basically a set, you know, a set sequence of of uh, of manoeuvres that you replicate and that you fly over and over again. So when you go to the flying field, if you've learnt the IMAC basic sequence and you go and practice that, and you try to improve and replicate and replicate and replicate, it's actually really really good practice. And I guarantee you, you become a better pilot. You become more precise because what you're trying to do with a lot of these disciplines is be precise in your flying. Even down to pylon racing. Pylon racing is a, is there a skill in being precise, getting that turns exactly right. And so, um, you know, I'm a big big fan of the IMAX sequences, the pattern sequences, and just learning them. And often what I'll do is I'll start on the simulator to learn the actual sequence and then I will take it to the field and break it down and start practicing. And a number of years ago I did this and my my flying really, really improved. It's gone backwards nowadays because I'm just not flying as much. But if you're regularly flying you want to improve, download a sequence and get out there and keep on practicing. <laughs> guest time my favorite part of the uh, podcast and i'll tell you what i've been saying this a lot with a lot of the recent guests i've been trying a long time to get some of these guests on board and just trying to get times lined up none more so than today's guest stephen Gregg is a man that is all over the place and when i'm in a low place he's traveling all over the world uh and so i've been trying to get this this podcast up and running for a few months and um couldn't align calendars but we finally did thankfully and because uh, he's a great guy and really passionate about flying. And not only do we talk about um, Stephen Gregg's uh, aerobatics activity and stuff like that, but he also works in the in the UAV space. 
and shares with us some some stuff that he's working on and um, we have a bit of a chat about that as well. So we cover a bit of ground on this one, but uh, always have, love having a chat with Aero Modelers, none more so than Stephen Gregg. So here we go. Over to the chat with Stephen Gregg. We have finally made it to this interview, an interview that I've been tracking down for oh, months now. Stephen Huggy Gregg, welcome to the Flat Out RC podcast. Thanks for having me. Well, Stephen, uh, as I said, we've been juggling calendars. You've been all yes. over the you've been all over the world <laughs> in a kind of way, but we finally made it happen. So it's good to be good to have you here. Now, there's a lot to cover because you're an avid aero modeler, but you also work in the industry. So we're going to cover sort of both grounds. But uh, where did your journey in aero modeling begin? Uh, it started when I was really young. My mum joined the air force, and I started having an interest in planes and from there, it kind of grew. I saw a model aircraft club on our old uh, Air Force base and thought that looks fun. And yeah, just begged mum to buy me a plane and get into it. So what did your mum do in the Air Force? Oh, I should know the answer to that. Well, was she a pilot or was she? <laughs> no, she was, a, she was a medic to start with. And I think she changed to logistics. Uh, not too sure. My mum's had a lot of jobs. Yeah, cool. And this is in New Zealand because <laughs> you're originally from New yes. Zealand, aren't you? Yes, correct. Okay, so what was the first plane you got? Uh, it was an Australian plane, a Ares, I think it was called, two-meter glider. Yes, Aeroflight. It's, it's a 1.6-meter glider, the Ares. You know why I know? Because I had one as well. <laughs> and it was wow. a cool-looking glider. Yeah, yeah. Well, my first one didn't last long, and the, the local model shop guy taught me to build it, and then another local club guy helped me build the repaired one, and from there, I got an interest in building them as well. So that's kind of where the building side started from. So this would have been in the 90s. Rude, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know that because I built one myself, but I'm, I'm a bit older than you. Okay, so did you crash that Aries? Yeah, I thought I could fly it on my own before waiting to go to the club, and I was very wrong. Okay, so uh, look, we've all done that. First plane... <laughs> The first plane is always the experimental plane, and then yeah, pretty much. If we get to the second plane, everything's up from there. So, what was your second plane then? Oh, uh, I think from there I went to an eighty forty. It was called. It was a top RC plane that was getting imported into New Zealand at the time for a hundred dollars. I think the airframe was so. A lot of people had sort of started using those, and when I rejoined the idea of flying, that's that's what I started with, and from there it just kept getting you know from the high wing to the low wings and then to the aerobatic planes did you pick it up quickly do you think yeah i think pretty quickly um yeah i can't remember i mean a couple of months of flying then sort of doing the takeoff and landing this was before the uh buddy cord days so it was just passing the transmitter and you, you couldn't make too many mistakes so you wasn't going to get saved yeah. How often were you getting out? Was it something that you were really keen I'd go every, every weekend and then any day after school if someone was going out and I could get a ride to the airfield, any chance I could get, it became an obsession. <laughs> well, actually, that makes a lot of sense then because I know you as a, a gun aerobatics pilot and so obviously you had a big love for it when you were younger and then obviously yes. got into the aerobatics early as well. When did you get into the, yes. did that sort of uh, bug hit you? Um a good friend of mine, Adam Butler, uh, he was sort of one of the main guys at uh, Airsail back in the day. And I used to fly with him and he sort of always had these big big iMac planes and kind of said, do you want to give it a go? And helped me 
a lot in the early days with lending their plane and teaching me to read Arresti and fly the manoeuvres and sort of as soon as I got hooked on iMac, that, that was it. I just loved it. It's a common story. People that discover iMac flying and then they get hooked. So how old were you when you, when you got hooked? I started flying iMac when I was 13, I think, 13 or 14. So it was yeah pretty early on. Then from you know once I was hooked on that, I got you know 3D foamies, and every morning before school, I'd be out flying that thing, and yeah, just it was 24/7. Okay, who were some of the uh, inspirations back in the day when you were getting into iMac? Fraser was always the you know the gun in New Zealand, so I looked up to him for many years, and uh, a lot of the old TOC pilots used to watch all those videos all the time, and yeah, the, the old school sort of aerobatic guys. Yeah, okay, Fraser Briggs. He's great. Yes. <laughs> One crazy man. <laughs> he, I love having him on the podcast. He will be back. I'll get him on. I've already had him on a few number of times now. Yeah. Actually, yeah. We, do a, 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 we do a Christmas special together. A year in review with Fraser is always fun. So that'll, that'll come up at the end of the year. I'll make sure I pencil him in. He's always, he's always drinking, though. Yeah, that sounds about right. Well, he pretends to drink. I don't know if he actually drinks that much. Yeah, maybe he talks it up <laughs> more than he does. He's, he can sip a drink for a long time, I can tell you that. Yeah, well, well, that's a good thing then. It's cheaper that way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, so what was, uh, you know, so you would have started when in the early 2000s or something? Did you get into iMac? Would have been around 2000 and, oh, gee, I don't know, 2004? I guess. Oh, yeah, okay. About then, yeah. So, and then I moved to the South Island of New Zealand for a few years, so wasn't as much uh, competition stuff to do. And then I mo- ended up moving back to the North Island and got back into the aerobatics and ended up doing an apprenticeship. So I started getting money to actually fund it. And from there, it started going from the smaller models to the bigger models. And that's when, yeah, got pretty exciting for me and also very expensive. As it does. <laughs> the planes never get smaller; they always get bigger. What, what, yeah, yeah. What planes were you flying back then when you first started out? Uh, I had a PBG two sixty two meter, and then from there I went to a Compass two point six two sixty, and then I started building my own uh, PBG two sixty three meters um, with Baldrick. So he taught me how to build all those, and I spent many years building the composite planes. Oh, so you were with Fraser and his dad? Off yes. Off. What were they like? Those the planes or the people? The, we know what the people are like. <laughs> the planes. Um, they were cool. I mean, it's one of my favorite planes, the, the 260. I just loved it. And it was something really nice about building your own plane. And every time you built one, you were kind of already thinking of building the next one and what you'd change and what you'd learn. And you know, some, some of them were pretty rough. Some of them were better than others. And I just enjoyed the experience of learning new things and trying new things and we're always trying to save weight somewhere and try a different technique and a lot of the times it worked and a lot of times it didn't yeah okay well actually that explains a lot because you know having watched your flying from afar there are things that you've done over the time where you go well, why did he do that like when you bought the uh, ito segev's krill and built your own wings yes <laughs> and <laughs> i was like dads and <laughs> but straight, straight away i thought this guy knows what he's doing <laughs> I don't know about that. Well, well, to go to go to that extent to grab a, a three meter krill composite airframe it was a three thirty SC, I think, and uh, yes, it was, and then yeah. go and rebuild the wings. It was all for performance, wasn't it? It was. Yes. Betty were yeah. just trying to make the wings lighter than the composite wings, correct? 
yeah i didn't even fly it with the composite wings <laughs> no so my um one of my good friends josh uh he had the same the sister plane to that and i'd flown his with composite wings and you know we talk every day so it was one of those things we always knew that that plane would go really well with light wings and i think i built the wings for mine and then he did the same for his and they they really flew a lot nicer and just for, for the high-end iMac where you wanted the snaps and things like that it was just yeah really helped it it is a problem with um i've met some some manufacturers that make composite planes and they always say wing weight is always a problem i've got this little um jet composite jet and small and the wings weigh a ton they are so yeah. heavy and the plane seems to roll a bit better when you've got the lighter wings, I think. But it's uh... it does, and the weight distribution is a lot better with with foam wings, especially because you know a composite wing per square inch is the same weight on the skin, no matter where it is. If it's at the tip, if it's at the root. Whereas when you build your own wings, you can build the strength in at the root where it needs to be, and then taper it out to the tip as you as you go out, and the the forces on it are not as high. Yeah. So, so you got the building bug as well early on, then. Yeah, I I kind of. It's always gone hand in hand for me, the, the building side as well as the flying. I enjoy both parts of it equally. Your building, though, is really just aerobatic planes. You're not really getting into scale planes or anything like that. No, no, I don't have time to put rivets on. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's true. You're like me. The, um, but when it, so your building was all about performance then? Yes. Uh, well, yes, performance, but also just having, having something you built yourself and competing with that was something I really enjoyed. Every time I built a uh, full ARF plane, it just never really was as enjoyable for me to fly it. Living in New Zealand, I feel sorry for the New Zealanders because I don't think you have as much access to hobby to, to models and it's expensive for you. Is that true? Yes. Yeah, for sure. It's always harder to get things. It was always more expensive. So if you wanted to keep getting things, you, you had to build it yourself because there wasn't as much readily available. Fraser was bringing in Compath, and there was a couple of small uh, built-up planes later in the years, but anything big, there was only ever a few that would come in each year, and you had to have the money to pay for it, really. But then you moved to Australia, and things changed. Yeah, I didn't move to Australia until a few years ago. I only, I only moved here five years ago, so I haven't actually been here that long. Yeah, well, well you're an Aussie but now, though. I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't regret it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so um, interesting. You're building your own planes. I've seen some of the photos of some of those planes. Uh, then you keep on progressing because when did you sort of hit? Now, how long did it take you to get from a basic standard in iMac right up to Unlimited? It was probably, well, I took a break um, when I moved to the South Island. So I kind of was flying basic and sportsman and then I moved. And then I moved, well, once I came back into iMac, it was probably only I think two years or three years before I went to Unlimited, but we didn't have the point system that Australia has has now. So it was kind of a if you wanted to move up, you moved up, and we just yeah, all all my friends we were flying with they were going up classes, and I was practicing those sequence and didn't want to just keep flying in other classes. So we all just sort of moved up together, and yeah, it was yeah pretty steep. So who else were you flying with? Uh, there was a guy, John Rogers, so I used to fly a lot with him and he was sort of always the, the top guy in whatever class I was flying in and we used to fly together a lot and he, he was the one that taught me to do a snap roll properly and 
So he, he always jokes about it's the one thing he regrets ever teaching me because once I learned it, that was it. <laughs> but did he teach you with snap rates on the radio or you actually learned how to fly one properly? No, he told me about how to unload the snap. And once I figured that out, it was, yeah, it was a lot easier to, to nail every snap. Because uh, I always have these, uh, these philosophical debates with my iMac friends that you know, I want to go and buy fancy radios that have snap rates and I'm like, learn how to fly it properly. You don't need to have snap rates on your radio kind of thing. And Yeah, there's all those snap triggers and things and I'm kind of old school with that. I, mean, I just have pretty basic rates set up and don't don't have all the triggers and things, mainly because I've just adapted to what whatever we've had as it, as it was coming out. I started with the technology before it had all those functions, so you just learn to use it that way. Yeah, and no doubt... You had a bit of mucking around with freestyle aerobatics as well at some point in time. Yeah, I've, I've still always had a bit of interest in that. Um, always got a freestyle model there, but don't fly it as much as the IMAX stuff. Yeah, I think it's hard. I think it's hard to do both well, you know, with the amount of practice you need to do with IMAX and then freestyle being a, a sort of a different beast as well. But uh, I know that most of the, the young IMACers do like throwing the plane around in between flights and just to let loose sometimes. Yeah, it's... it's- it's nice to just sort of unwind a bit, but you know, to be very competitive with both, they both require as much dedication to perfecting. And you know, you, for the, the top freestyle guys, they put in the time to really nail those sequences and fly as well as they do. And for me, I just didn't didn't have the time or the the response skills anymore. Yeah. I sort of focused on on the iMac, and yeah, you have a bit of a freestyle fly just to have a bit of fun and do it. But uh, yeah, for me, I chose the the precision aerobatic side of it more than the the freestyle you said you had a bunch of friends that were also competing in imac do you think you would have kept on progressing if you didn't have that network of friends around you as well that were equally motivated no i don't think so because you you, you go out flying and there was something to practice there's someone to do the calling teach you those things so that was just how we went flying um if i didn't have that it'd be very hard to to practice and learn all the different different maneuvers and different sequences and there's always someone flying a, a class above you so you could practice that for fun and the person flying that class would then teach you how to fly that sequence and so it was a, it was a good network to grow the imac side um i was just lucky that where i was flying was a big imac scene yeah the uh you know, when you say big imac scene in new zealand like how many competitors would you get at an event oh <laughs> not not like this not like australia um and and a few years there used to be the Wahara Rumble that Fraser used to run. And I remember some of those were really big, but at average comp, I think a, a big comp would sort of be 15, 20 people um, from memory. It could have been more or less. Um, and as it, it, it sort of would go up in peaks, sometimes it would be pattern would be the more popular thing. We'd fly pattern for a while and then IMAC would make a bit of a comeback and it sort of float between those two classes really. It's been similar sort of in Australia. We've seen a bit of a resurgence, especially where I am in Victoria, massive resurgence in IMAC. But, you know, go back seven years or so and there were three people in Victoria that were competing in IMAC and now we're selling out, uh, you know, um, competitions, you know, with up to yeah. 30, 30 pilots stuff. So And and I think it's, it's because, like you experienced having friends around you, that the group that got into IMAC did it as a group a lot yes. of my mates were doing it, young guys and whatever, and we're all members of the same club, and and they all egged each other on and said, "Hey, I'm going to this event. You should come. We're having a ball." And then they'd go, and then yeah. the next minute, they're all just progressing and progressing and buying bigger planes, of course. Yeah, well, 
yeah, it's the thing. I was, I was living in Melbourne for three years before I moved to Brisbane. So I was, you know, got to be part of it and I was a member at Northern. So I used to fly with Michael and Dresick and see all the work he was doing to grow the, the IMAX side and, uh, Darren Mecklen, all those guys are just yeah. really nice guys and really supportive of the, the new members and getting people interested and running those do try it days and things like that. Just, yeah, I mean, you can see how well it's worked over the last few years. There's huge numbers down there, which is awesome. Yeah, it has been really good. I always fear, though, like having been around the scene for a while, you see the, the peaks and the troughs. And, yes. you know, we, I always say there's these generations of iMackers. And I can sort of date back to probably a th- couple of generations prior of some of the people that used to be involved that are no longer around flying. And uh, there's a really enthusiastic bunch, but keeping that that level up it just involves getting new blood in. But uh, it's really hard to get new blood in when you're selling out of <laughs> selling out at competitions where you've got no more spaces. But um, yeah, yeah, it's just, you be careful what you wish for. <laughs> that's right. This year's nationals is going to be big. Are you going to come down to, to Melbourne for the nationals in? Uh, yeah, I'm hoping. Oh, sorry, um, this year's just been hectic for me with work, but the the two comps that I've really looked forward to is one next weekend, which is Tin Can Bay, and then yeah, the the Melbourne Nats, which will be really cool. So if I make those two, I'll be happy. Well, the Tin Can Bay, I know that there's uh, people from uh, Melbourne trekking up for that event. There's a number of people that I know that are. Uh, are leaving shortly. We'll, we'll this, yeah. this podcast is going to come out after the Tin Can Bay um, event, but yeah, it's becoming it's becoming really popular that Tin Can Bay event. Every time I think of Tin Can Bay, though, I, I, personally, I was up there a number of years back and I got food poisoning. Midges. Oh, and so well, you don't get food poisoning; it's the midges, I think. Oh, yeah, that too. I got eaten alive, totally, yeah. utterly eaten alive. I was still scratching, you know, my skin two to three weeks after I arrived back in Melbourne because I went up Tin Can Bay, up to Harvey Bay on a boat, you know, mangroves everywhere overnight. Yeah, I just got eat onto Fraser Island. Yeah, I got eaten alive, absolutely eaten alive. Yeah, I get the same. I, I hate it. Oh, <laughs> see, a friend of mine actually who had the boat that I was staying on, he he's probably going to be. Oh, he's looking at moving up there. He's bought a house up on the Sunshine Coast. He says, "Oh, you should come and live up there." And I'm like. I'd just be scratching myself all the time. They just love me. Yeah. <laughs> oh, There's something something in the blood that they love. Oh, I'm shocking with mosquito bites and other insects. Are just oh. Now, yeah. okay, why did you come to Australia? Um, I just uh, thought there'd be more opportunity when I was doing the UAV work and things like that. It was a bigger place. Just felt like a change in my life and... I just, yeah, it was one of those things I just decided I was doing and I did it. I'd come back from living in America to New Zealand. I think I stayed there for six months practicing for the shootout. And then after that, I just sort of felt like I needed to do something different. And yeah, I just thought Australia would be a great place. (laughs) And I moved to Melbourne, which was great for the lifestyle, but I didn't realize it was going to be so cold. It wasn't at all what I thought it was going to be. (laughs) No. (laughs) <laughs> tell you what, it's it's been we're, we're having a bit of a cold snap here in Melbourne at the moment, and I'm I uh, well as it's you know year, isn't it? Well, no, <laughs> we have a great time in summer. It's just, it was just winter. Was like I I sent you a photo yesterday when we were trying to tee up a, a recording, and I was up at the snow again, and um, oh, it's cold up at the snow, but it's not snowing enough. We need more snow at the moment, but uh, right. 
But anyway, it's it's chilly. I've been wearing my ski socks to work um, to try to keep my feet warm. So yeah, I had to put shoes on for the first time this week in a long time. So we've we've also got cold here. Yeah, I heard there's a bit of a cold snap up uh, up north. Where are you living now? Are you in Brisbane or, or where? Yes, Brisbane, Brisbane. Yeah, no. Yeah, actually, I got a uh, a company I do some work for, and I was talking to the guy, and he was in Brisbane, and I said, "How are you going?" He goes, "I'm cold." I said, "What? You're in Brisbane?" He goes, "Yeah, <laughs> it's cold at the moment." But seventeen for us is cold. Yeah, that's true. That's true. All the Melbournians, a lot of Melbournians, head up to Queensland this time of year to try to escape the cold. But I've I've, I've been cold yeah, up yeah. in Queensland. But the good thing I think, you know, uh, actually, it'd be good to get your opinion on on the differences between. Flying model planes in in Victoria down south versus up in Queensland. What what's the difference? Um, I think it's it's fun no matter where you go. You make you make it what it is, and it's always good people if you choose to be around good people. And I don't think it matters too much where you are. It's just who you're flying with and what sort of flying you're doing. And obviously here we get to do a lot more flying, so you see people more regularly. I guess when it's colder and you're not flying as often, when you do see people, it's more of a, a social catch-up because you haven't seen people in such a long time. But I think, yes, yeah, pretty similar. It always feels if uh, you just have the opportunity to fly a bit more than what we do down here. I always know that, like, in in our winter months, it's either going to be wet or windy, one of the two. And so, you, you yeah, know, yeah. And then there's sometimes... Yeah, and sometimes you just can't bother going when it's freezing cold. But I don't like, in saying that, I don't like flying when it's really, really hot. Maybe gliders, but yeah. See, I love, I love oh. the heat. So I remember like days going to Northern to do testing and flying things, and if it was, well, it was always windy at Northern, but those those bitter winds would just come up from the south, and you just knew you were going to go stand in that field and be free. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's true. That's true. What club are you flying at up in uh, Brisbane? Uh, so I've joined Samba, which is where a lot of the IMAC guys are flying. It's only forty minutes from where I live. Um, it's yeah, really, really awesome club. Got all the facilities, two runways. So, yeah. Oh, it sounds all right. I haven't been up to that club. But uh, you mentioned uh, um, Tucson Shootout. Um, so yep. I want to talk a bit about um, some of the stuff that you've done overseas, flying um, competitions and stuff. No doubt Fraser dragged you along to, to Tucson. Was he the man that sort of instigated your, your competition over there? The the first shooter I went with Fraser, um, but before that he helped. You know, it was sort of every year was the Aussie Nats, um, and he'd always sort of help a few people get get the stuff together and get over to Australia to do the Nats. So that was what I started with a few times, um, and then from there it was always a goal to to do the shootout. And the first one I went with him, and just recently, just uh, myself and Steve Richardson went together, which was a really cool trip and one of those trips you treasure forever. It sounds like it's a lot of work to get there, though. I, I just get fascinated about competing over. It is, but it's fun. Did, did you take a plane? Did you send a plane over? I did. Well, no, we didn't this time. We we uh, used an extreme flight laser, and then bought the kit over there and built built it uh, before the comp and copied everything over from the the model we were flying here, which, in hindsight, was probably not a great idea, but it was what we thought we'd do. So we we gave it a go, and yeah. It was, it was um, stressful at times, but it was yeah. It's always fun, no matter no matter how good or bad it seems at the time afterwards. It's it's always fun. Yeah. I always say it's it's great when you get to travel for your hobby and meet new people. And yeah, there's just something special about it. Um, and you've been to Jonal as well. 
Uh, yeah, I went yeah quite a few years ago now, um, only for a couple of days. Just I was passing through on a work trip and thought go there for a few days and see what it was like, and that that was really cool. There was certainly something unique to see about that with all the different flight lines and just how many people are there. Just on that, with lots of people there, is it hard to get a flying spot? Like a, you know, to slot in or I can't remember to be honest. I think it wasn't too bad. There's always sort of you know because you can go down to either flight line that you want to go to, and you sort of just wait your turn, and you're chatting to new people while you're waiting anyway. So it's it didn't feel like you're standing there desperate for a fly. That's for sure. What was your flight line of choice? Um, I only flew once there. I flew um, a guy I know's plane, and it was in mode two, and I was mode one. So it was just a quick brief flight aside flowing there. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Now, you said that you, you, you said that you, you're in the UAV industry now. You came to to Australia to sort of further that. Um, just yep. you know, tell us how did you get into that UAV sort of space? Uh, it was well from a um, guy in New Zealand that flew IMAX, so he had a company, and I'd moved back from America, and he needed some work doing, so I was doing a little bit of work with him. Um, and then from there, it just sort of got busier and ended up working for them for quite a few years and yeah, really enjoyed the industry and sort of where, where it was heading, it kind of joined up the hobby and, and, um, work. So it was good for a while. And then soon, soon enough, the hobby side just became a bit of a hassle to, to find time to do because you're doing it all day for work. Um, and just, yeah, in the last few years I started my own company and from there I sort of had about to bring in the hobby again and start enjoying doing doing it for work and for fun. Yeah. Well, I've, I've, I know a lot of um, of my friends that were avid aero modelers that you know sort of got snapped up by UAV organisations. What was it, what was the first thing that you had to do with UAVs? Because I know that a lot of people were sort of recruited to build UAVs because of the aero modelling experience and the yeah. test fly things. Is, is that what what you were doing? So I started with the the composite side, doing all the the layups of the the bodies and things, because um, that's what I'd done leaving school. And obviously the the composite planes building the PBGs, so we knew how to build things light and still strong enough. So I, that's that's how I first got into it. And from there it was slowly doing the test flying and then the the assembly of the electronics and yeah, you just kind of learn each stage as you go. And the more more you do it, the more you take on, the more you learn, and it just Grows. So the the UAV stuff that you're working with now is it sort of traditional multi rotor kind of stuff or fixed wing combination of both? What is it? So we do um, more traditional multi rotors. Um, we also have a helicopter, and in the last year we've been developing the EFI side as we've made our own generators and working with DA to to make all their motors uh, fuel injected and. That's been really interesting for me because it's quite quite a passionate side of things to work on these motors and see how much performance you can get out of them and all that side of it, which has been really cool. Well, I saw some some Facebook posts of you testing EFI, and it's something that oh, I'd love to have an EFI motor in my model planes. And and I know <laughs> a lot of people, uh, other people, have tried to get it to work. And, yeah, you know, back in the day when it. Edo Sega was around, we used to talk about it and you'd say, oh, it's too hard to do because of the different altitudes and, and all this kind of stuff. You know, how's it looking? Without giving away any confidential information, how's the EFI stuff uh, looking? Very good. I mean, all those sort of like the altitude, we, we obviously have altitude sensors in it now, so all the fuel 
fuel mappings adjusted based on the barometric pressure of where you are. So we tested it at Australia at sea level, didn't change any mapping, went to Tucson at 3,000 feet, went up to 8,000 feet, still not changing anything. So the, the fuel injection side for the UAV means you can ship it anywhere in the world and it's going to be tuned as well as it was where you've, wherever you tuned it. It'll automatically lean or rich in depending where you are in the world. How much extra gear do you need to put in, say, a model plane if you have to run EFI? Not too much. Um, still use an ignition system, but then from there you've got the ECU and the fuel pump and the secondary battery for the for the whole system. So it's not it's not a huge weight penalty, but it is a weight penalty. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see if it comes in because no doubt there's a bit of cost involved in, in moving to EFI. I think it will if mass production of it can be possible, but then the other side of it is all our engines we work on and sell the engine fully tested, run in, you know, as a complete system, not just the EFI. And I think when you start selling just the EFI part, you've got to rely on people to have the skills to be able to integrate it yeah. and, and tune it. And, th- and that's where it gets a little bit harder is there's a lot of a lot of work in IP and how to get the motor to run and not blow it up. And, you know, I can see the side effects of selling it to just anyone might not be the most beneficial, but who knows where it'll head. Yeah. No, I think... Um... It sounds like things are moving in the right direction now. Of course, that's for commercial applications. And and interested to know, you know, I've sat I've, I've sat from afar and observed what's been happening in that UAV space. And um, I still have this, this, you know, there's a lot of people around the world. There's a lot of development happening in China as well with UAV technology. There's a lot of people working on UAV technology. What, yes. you know, We've seen challenges in relation to the technology, you know, battery life and, you know, uh, things like that. How is it placed at the moment? Are, are things progressing in solving some of the challenges that we've had around traditional UAV um, aircraft? Yeah, I mean, the industry is growing so fast. That's what's kind of really intriguing about it is whatever you're developing is almost obsolete by the time you've solved all the problems. Um, but the, the battery side, that was always something that just moved very slowly. In the last few years, there's been sort of semi-solid state um, batteries that we've been testing, which have had small increases of you know 20 to 25 percent flight time. But the big big thing for us that we've developed is the hybrid. So we're using the petrol motor as a generator as well as battery. So we've got redundancy, but also exceptional flight times. You know, we've got went from an aircraft that could do 25 minutes with five kilo payload to five hours. So those sort of um advancements have been really really sort of big in how the industry is moving um away from the batteries but then the battery stuff's always always going to be around because it's it's simple and people just need something that's simple and reliable where's the uh, where's the demand for uavs is it in defense or is it in you know other commercial applications it, well, it depends on where that where your company's focusing. For us, we focus on the surveying market, so land mapping and lidar surveying. Um, but there, there is a lot of defence work, engines and things like that lend themselves to that that side of the industry. Um, but it really depends what what the company's focuses on. There's so many sectors to the UAV world that you know you can get it. Ukraine's been a, an example of where they can innovate using the cheapest possible solutions and make something that's usable. And then there's, you know, us with the payloads of four or $500,000 that you've got to spend a lot of time to be sure that what you're selling to someone is safe 
to fly near people with these payloads. We, you worked on a project as well with um, with Steve Richardson um, with sort of automated flight from takeoff to landing, didn't you? No, that wasn't me. That was Josh. Oh, Josh, that's right. No. Josh and Steve were doing that project. Yeah, Josh, Josh worked on that. Yeah, yeah. Like a good project. Um, yeah, it was pretty impressive what those guys were doing. And th- those are the kind of projects that are interesting, whereas a lot of R&D and pioneering the technology. And, yeah, it's, it's really cool to see how fast some of that stuff can move and what can be done with a bit of time and funding and manpower. Yeah, I think that's what it takes, doesn't it? It's just we're we're at the sort of infancy, really, and as you said, things are just progressing at such a great rate of knots, and uh, which is good to see because I think um, there's definitely a lot of applications for for for, for UAVs. It's just having a cost effective solution that actually works and fits different requirements. And um, the surveying things, it, it, it's interesting because I. I actually do a little bit of work in that space. I have a customer that does a lot of uh, surveying technology and uh, and I, I've written a lot about the application of drones in construction and monitoring construction projects and, and all that kind of stuff. And and once you really take a close look, you go, gee, that makes a lot of sense, you know. Um, yeah. And, and I think uh, we're going to see see, see the, the progression even going further. So uh, people talk about delivery yeah, sure. drones and things like that. Do you, do you think that it's a reality in the near future to, to for the world to be de- delivering products via drones? Not not really. Not not from what I think. But, I mean, you just don't know. I, I just don't have any interest in that side of it. Um, but I think there's a lot of regulations and things that will need to be put in place. and then. How does it handle when the first accident happens that hurts someone, I guess, will be the the real sort of decider on where that technology goes. I, you know, I think for me it was the delivery drone thing was great PR for tech, for the technology. Yes. And people were going, oh, yeah, people are going to have pizzas delivered by drone. I was talking to someone the other day about it. And I said, you reckon you really seriously think yeah. your pizza is going to be delivered <laughs> by a drone when the current regulations basically rule it out? So, you know, yeah. and, and we know that governments around the world are trying to, authorities around the world are trying to scramble to work out how they manage the airspace, but I just can't see the application or the demand or organisations increasing their cost to deliver a good um, and how much are we willing to pay for it. And then can you imagine you're going to have teams of drone people charging batteries up and rep- Imagine yeah. the repair bills on repairing drones that came down and hit the power lines in a tree and landed on a car. And oh, you, oh. I know that they've got to build a, a huge network of knowledge before they can really ex- expand that anywhere. And the, the regulations are only going to get tougher. So yeah, I think it'll be it'll be hard to see where that goes, where it can be sustainable. But you never know. I've done a lot of work around retail technology, and there was a big push about last mile delivery. And I was in this. I uh, went to New York to this big tech, you know, the world's biggest retail technology exhibition, and uh, and all these people developing all these solutions for last mile delivery. You'd ask them how much is it going to cost to you know implement something like this. They couldn't tell you. That's how expensive it was. I was too scared to tell you. <laughs> but I actually I was in LA last year, and I did see one of the solutions that someone was spruiking, and I called it a, an Esky on wheels. If you're in New Zealand, a chili bin on wheels. Right, and this thing was <laughs> autonomously going down the footpath, delivering something. And I, I looked at it, and I think it was a novelty, and it was waiting at the traffic lights, and you went to cross it. So it, it had some smarts in it. 
But I was thinking, I wonder what yeah. that thing is carrying and how much people pay to have the goods <laughs> delivered. And what happens when the local thug comes around and kicks it off its wheels? Then what do you do? Yeah, that's, that's it. Yeah. And all, all, all the AI stuff that just, you know, how much development and money went into making it yeah, do that. Yeah, so again, I think it's it's great marketing. Oh, look, we can deliver to you autonomously. Good on you. The, so are you developing new technology or new platforms? What's the focus with your business? So we're always moving forward with developments, uh, refining things. The, the biggest new development was the EFI technology, um, which we're, we're growing quite quickly at the moment. Um, but yeah, the, the platforms are always just refinement and modifications that unique customers want different payload integrations and communication systems. And, and part of that new technology being asked for and driven also helps the RC world because a lot of RC stuff still gets used in the UAV industry and it's having to get improved because of that for reliability and endurances. So I think it, it's helping the RC world a lot as well. Once they crack the, uh, the EFI nut, no doubt everything will become sort of miniaturized. It'll go, there'll be a push to get everything smaller and lighter and more compact and simplified and that kind of stuff. So, um, and if you're working with uh, Desert Aircraft, well, uh, I hope it. Yeah, I've been been very fortunate. Hope, yeah, I hope it comes <laughs> into it. What, so, what were you, what what model were you testing the? Uh, the it was a one twenty cc, wasn't it? Uh, we've done the thirty, the seventy, one twenty, one fifty, two fifteen. Really? Kind of doing the full range. The uh, for for UAV application, what size do you generally go towards if you're using it as a generator, bigger or smaller? Uh, our generator mo- motor uses the DA seventy. Oh, okay, the twin. Or, yeah. and we, yeah. yes, yep, the twin. So we're getting about three and a half kilowatts out of the seventy, which is is pretty awesome for you know the, the payloads we're carrying. Yeah. So no doubt you you wouldn't have to be running that motor at full noise though, would you? Um, you run at high RPMs, but not as highly loaded. So we'll be sitting around 7,000 RPMs for five, six hours, no oh, really? problem. So it, it is a different, different throttle curve you're using on them and they, they have different wear, but yeah, it's, it's still the, the DA engines are more than capable. We get modifications with different bearings and things like that that are needed yeah. for those long run times and yeah, we, we're pretty lucky to have the relationship with DA Australia for the ignition side and DA America for the actual engine part of it. So you're doing five-hour test flights in a model plane? Uh, in, a, in a multi-rotor. Oh, well, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you can manage how boring that can get at times. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'd, uh, I'd put some headphones in and listen to a podcast or something. <laughs> I'd have to do, yeah, have to do yeah. something else. I don't know. Well, usually if you're testing, you're, you're kind of monitoring a lot of different things and verifying data, and yeah, that, that's the bit I enjoy for sure is the the R and D side of it. We should get a um a team together and do like a world record attempt, longest flight with a with a UAV. I'm actually about to do it, so I've I've done all the calculations and tests to prove I can do it and beat the record. Oh. So hopefully after my next trip, that's that's what I'm gonna head out and do oh, that'd be cool but that's 13 hours so that's that's going to okay, be a long that's a day. lot of red bull yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, so the, the current world record is held by an american company and yeah i want to take so that in a single flight you reckon you can do it yes I, i've done the calculations to prove that it's possible so as long as the motor keeps going for that whole time and we don't have any other issues then yeah i think it's 100 percent doable <sighs> 
but I'd hate to get to 12 and a half hours and yeah, run out yeah. of fuel. To me, it sounds like it, to me, it sounds like <laughs> you're having a lot of fun in the industry. Yeah, I mean, if, I'm I'm very fortunate that I, I love my job and yeah, I, I really enjoy it. So it's not really work for me. It's, I mean, at times it's work, but yeah, it's very enjoyable and I'm very fortunate to be doing what I'm doing. Yeah, no, it, it sounds exciting and it it it, it amazes me how you know that. You can have a career that that stems from your aero modeling, you know, especially if you're yes. younger. Like this is today, you know, if you're an older aero modeler that's retired, you know, there's a different kettle of fish. But, you know, people your age group and even, um, you know, younger have had opportunities now to to take their passion for aero modeling into, into that UAV space, which is, um, you know, who would have thought? Who would have thought that you start flying modeling, yeah. you get your, your aeroflight Aries glider, and that leads to a career in um, in UAV. I know it's 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 pretty cool. I mean, back then I think there was only a very small JR computer radio that I remember seeing. It was the the flagship model, and it was like very minimal computing compared to what you can do on the the radios these days. And yeah, so I think I was probably one of the first of that the newer generation that was able to transition to the the UAV industry because we kind of grew up with that technology evolving so quickly. Which was pretty fortunate. That's true. It's it's amazing to see, you know, where we are today with our technology versus twenty years ago, um, you know, thirty years ago, forty years ago. You know, I've interviewed a lot of people that have been in the hobby for a long time, and their experience going back to the seventies and you know sixties and control line, it was hard work. Uh, you know, it was, it was they were working yeah. hard <laughs> because, you know, uh, when someone said to me. Uh, yeah, we had multiple aeroplanes, but we'd have to move servos around between the planes. We wanted to fly another plane because we didn't have multiple sets of of gear. I mean, we had one radio, you know, and uh, you know, yeah. And of course, you had to build everything. If you crashed everything, you had to rebuild it. And so then we have ARFs, and then motor technology. Planes got bigger, radios got better. You know, electric flight came into it. Foamies now. You know, it's, it's, we've got so much choice and. Everything just became more reliable, didn't it? Like that would, yeah, really. Imagine really the did. early days of radio control would be like hit and miss whether you're going to actually go home with a plane in one piece. Yeah, well, my first radio was given to me, and it, the um, I can't remember what it's called. You know, where the, the negative wire goes green and corroded, mm. and it had that, so it was kind of intermittent. Sometimes it would just shut off, and other times it was fine. But that was that was all I had, and that's all we could afford. So for for a while, that that's all I used. And every now and then, it would cost you a plane, but you know, it was the, the price you paid and then you'd swap all the gear to the next plane, like you were saying. And for many years, that's all I could afford to do. And you'd buy one new bit for something and slowly everything would get better and better and you'd afford the next bit and you'd change it to the next yeah. plane. Well, it's so – it's it's, and we're seeing even uh, the changes in technology even in the last, oh, I'd say, six years to seven years. Um, I call it the Jace Ducier effect that um, – Jace started an aggressive form of flying, but the aggressive form of flying also sure. aligned with a shift in um, technology where carbon was coming into airframes. So airframes were getting lighter, engines were getting more powerful, and so now you could really overpower the model. And Edo Segev said to me, he said, we couldn't fly like this in 2010. The planes didn't do it. We were flying three-meter planes. It was no. <laughs> kind of underpowered. And even Fraser talked about some of the models that he had 
that were just underpowered. And then, you know, you've got a DA200 in a three meter. It's a different story now. 120cc as planes got lighter, things got better, um, you know. And now we've, we've seen in iMac where it's traditionally composite airframes. Everybody had a composite airframe, a Compaf and Krill. Compaf and Krills were the two big names in you know, in the IMAX scene, but now we're going back to Balsa, which is the predominant airframe. Where are you placed at the moment with your IMAX model? What, what are you flying? Uh, I've got the Carden, uh, composite Carden, so I was lucky enough to get one of the prototypes of that. Um, so I've been flying that since the shootout. I started flying that model. And, yeah, I've always loved the composite fuse. Um, then foam core wings and stabs are always the... That's, to me, that's the best combo is the, the fuse composite and then a hybrid of foam core, everything so else. So the Carden comes with the foam core wings? No, it comes as a composite plane, but um, it's yeah been developed with the owner of JR. So he sort of spec'd how it was going to be built and where, where all the servos and weight loadings were going to be. And they've really made a nice composite plane that flies as good as the, the foam core wing planes. It looks really good. So you, you've been happy with it? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I love it. It's yeah, I've always sort of liked the lines of the the Cardin, so it's been a dream to get one of those. Well, I was talking to uh, a guy we know, uh, Chris Rutnut Rudder, and <laughs> um, he said, "Oh yeah, I'm going to get one of those Cardins." So I don't know whether he's ordered one or what. Yeah, I'm but, not uh, sure. Hopefully, yeah, and he asked enough questions. He should have. Yeah, no, I think I think he's going to place an order for one. But what motor is in that? What are you? What's I've got the DA200 okay. in there. So it's a three meter? That, yes. So the, the 200 is always my go-to IMAC motor. Yeah, but it seems to be for most people now with running the three meters is they're running 200s. Um, you know. Do you need it though? Do you need the yeah. 200? Yeah, you do. <laughs> when there's two or three snaps and things going up and different winds, you really you use it, that's for sure. Yeah. Because oh, they they did they didn't and exist the, the throttle transition yeah I I do love the quad motors they sound good and they uh yeah it's sound. just instant power yeah you gotta love power people say to me like I, I bought a new car yes. <laughs> and I bought the you know the six cylinder versus the the turbo four and people said why do you need that I said safety having a little bit extra grunt can always help <laughs> you like always a little bit extra yeah is is good. Okay, so that your Carden's your main model now. You got anything else in the hangar? Uh, so the Carden's my main model, but I'm also building, well, one of my all-time favorite models at the moment, which I've been working on all day today, is the Compaf 260. So I got one of those a few months ago through a friend helped me get that model. And, yeah, we've been doing a few modifications to it. There was something we always said we'd do if we ever had the time to build one of these models in a certain way. So hopefully we get that finished in time for Wednesday to get in the trailer and, Hit hit ten oh, really? with so it. So it's like put it together and go and test flight at the at the competition. Yeah, that that's exactly it. So it'll be yeah, a two sixty that's slightly different to how everyone else has got their setup. EFI. <laughs> no. What's what's the motor in that? Uh, DA one seventy. That's um, been all painted and um, how he actually built that for me last weekend with all the parts that were sent over. So everything's been a bit last minute for it, but. It's, yeah, it's, it's a pretty cool-looking motor. It's got all the um, painted heads and ground-down fins and things like that, so it looks looks pretty yeah, cool. it looks good, actually. I saw a photo of that, and I thought, oh, that's, that looks special. Now, yeah, <laughs> the 
I had a good question to ask you, but of course it escaped my mind. But I think it was something to do with um, that we've seen in iMac. A lot of people move to the hundred cc size. All right. Um, yep. I, I always thought iMac, yeah, go and buy a three meter because it's going to be a more stable platform, and that's what you want. I think that's the Australian approach. It's, it's very different to New Zealand. You know, in New Zealand, everyone's flying fifty cc planes and. I'm, you know, basics, 30cc, 50cc is big. And then as you go up, you get to the hundreds and then the three meters are really for just unlimited and a few people in advance. But you come to Australia and everyone's got a three meter, which is, I guess, because it's more readily available, you know, with DA and Krill Australia and that bringing them in all the time. There's just so many options to choose from. Yeah, that is true. It's good that we've got that choice, though, you know. I always it get is. scared <laughs> of the industry if, if things start to fall apart and there's not a market that we're going to lose the choice. But the good good thing is that um, we've got plenty of choice. But um, So that Compaf, you haven't made wings for that, have you? You'll see. Ooh. Now I'm intrigued. <laughs> <laughs> I reckon you have. Have you still got the krill? <laughs> uh, which one? The yeah. one from Edo? No, I sold that to an iMac guy when um, I moved up and unfortunately he crashed it not long after yeah. owning it. But he's currently building another, he's got another same model, but he's just building phone call wings for it and trying to replicate the same model again, which hopefully he gets, gets going how he liked it because he only flew it for a couple of weeks, but he loved it. What would you love to see in an iMac plane? Like what kind of, you know, what's your perfect iMac plane really look like? To be honest, the, the Cardin ticks all the boxes for the ideal iMac plane. Um, it's got the right size control throws and surfaces, the, the yeah, the, all the lines on it. That it, it really does tick tick all the boxes for me. That's interesting. I do like the Cardin. It's a great look. Yeah, well, it's come from you know, the, the Cardins were the go-to plane, the original Balsa foam ones. So it's really cool that this composite version's been done. And I think the the first production ones have already shipped and a few guys in America are starting to build them. So it's going to be really cool to see where that model goes in the next couple of years and what people start doing yeah. with it. I like the scheme. <laughs> That's a big one for me. Yeah. You, you... I'm not actually a fan of the scheme, but I only have one I only have one scheme I do for everything. So that's yeah. probably why. What's your, what's your scheme <laughs> on your, your 260 Compi? Uh, it's the yellow taxi. I was going to say the yellow taxi. Can, can we please <laughs> update the yellow taxi scheme? I, I know I don't like that scheme either, but it's just what it is. I mean, that's the thing. That's why I like building my own planes because you get to choose whatever you want yeah, to do. Yeah, that's true. The uh, I suppose the scheme that I hated the most was the Compa Fantasy scheme. It looked like someone graffitied the side of the plane, but it's one of those that one of those schemes that some people love. A friend of mine's got on. And yeah, I just hate it. Yeah. I just think, ah, oh, who graffitied the plane? I think it's the one for sale recently. Yeah, the blue one. Uh, yeah. There's a blue three meter <laughs> kind of one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think the people that love it, it's for the nostalgia reason, and some people, yeah, like I say, just love that, and some people don't. I'm certainly on on your team. Yeah, I, I'm like very traditional, clean lines, like you know, traditional aerobatic kind of lines. I think I think where those schemes probably came from was the first sort of compass were pioneering the the painting in the yeah. mold. And it's a lot easier to freehand a scheme when you're painting in moulds for the first time compared to doing crisp lines. So I assume that's where yeah, a lot of that point. first started. Yeah, good point. I definitely think so too. Okay. Do you fly any small stuff or just mainly your go-to is the iMac planes? 
uh, fly a few park flies and things every now and then. You know, a couple of friends will get together and do that. Um, slope soaring's always something I've really enjoyed on the times I do get out to do it. But majority of it now is just if I get time, I go out practice on that. Um, just yeah, mainly because I just don't have the time like I used to have. Yeah, we're all, we're all struggling with that. The uh, is it the social yeah. aspect of uh, slope soaring that you like, or you can just be up there with a few other people and have a chat and swipe it down? I yeah, you know. Exactly, combat. You can switch off and crash into a tree, and it's funny. It's just you know, there's no, you're not going to break anything. It's just good fun. Yeah. Zero stress. Well, I've been raving about float flying because I went to a float flying event and flew this little foamy that I've got off the water, and it was very similar. It's very, it's a very social way of flying because you're not, you know, you're just mucking around over the water. It's like a novelty. And so you, you've got a different mindset. Yeah. And we were just flying circuits and doing touch and goes and flying in formation. But you're sitting with, with a mate who's got the same plane. You're just mucking around. At, but, you know, good mucking around, not nothing too stupid. But, hey, okay, I'm going to come in for a touch and go. Okay, I'll come in after you. Okay, let's just see if we can fly in formation. See if you can yeah. get a bit closer to me and all this kind of stuff. It was just a <laughs> oh, – I had so much fun. But I'm just – Yeah, there's, there's something really fun about just doing yeah, that. Yeah, I'm just scared though because it was such a good day. And we had perfect, you know, it wasn't a clear, sunny day, but it was dead calm. There wasn't a breath of wind. And so it was perfect right. float flying conditions. And I felt, uh, I feel as if uh, maybe next time I go, it's not going to be as good. And then I'm going to think, oh, it was rough and the plane was bouncing around in the water and I flipped it over or whatever. But but anyway. Nah, there'll, be, there'll be something else that makes it fun. There always yeah, is. Yeah. That's what I mean, but, you know, there's always good and bad at the time things you're like, oh, that wasn't that great. And afterwards, there's, there's always a funny story that comes yeah. from it. I, I do like the slope soaring thing, but I found the last few times I've done it, I've done it by myself and there's been nobody around down, right. sort of down the coast kind of thing. And I started to get bored because there was just no yeah. around. I think it's a very social thing, slope soaring and, and foamies. Same with, you know, foamies. I, I just, if I go fly it out by myself, you know, one battery yeah, yeah, and I'm bored. True, true. But I had um, a great slope soaring session with uh, Ido Segev and his and his brother Jonathan, and we're all mode two. We're all mode two right. flyers. So I, I I was the only one with the model, and we literally were there for about an hour. And all we did was just pass the transmitter <laughs> around. The plane didn't land, and yeah. Ido was like so good at flying the damn thing. I'm like, oh, why are you so good at everything that you touch? It's like, it's just, but we were just, <laughs> but we were just having a chat, and this, and the flying side was sort of secondary. I go, anyone else want to have a turn? And we just go, yeah, okay, hand it over, continue having a chat. And I thought, oh, this is this is great time. And then, uh, yeah, that that's the really fun side. Yeah. Of it. And then of course, you know, we're egging Ido on. Okay, do a knife edge pass, and we try. You know, it's pretty hard to do. It was an aerobatic uh, slope sawer, but. Um, do a flat spin, okay. Yeah. So that was yeah, a good good times. Okay. Why do people call you Huggy? Um, it's not even that great a story, to be honest. It just it's one of those names that just stuck. So it was just that at a nationals and the contest director was um he was a funny guy and he was just drunk at night and then everyone had gone to bed and he thought it'd be funny to pull down my tent and climb into my tent and Said he was, you know, was going to sleep in the tent, and I was like, "Well, if you're going to sleep there, you better tell me a bedtime story." And he said there was once was the huggy bear, and he'd woken everyone up by that point. And that's all they heard. And then the next morning, yeah. that was kind of it. It's, it's, it's just stuck. Every time I've spoken to Fraser Briggs, he always tells me tales of you know the New Zealand crew and stuff like that. And I'm getting a bit yeah. concerned because <laughs> have, have you been involved in some of Fraser's shenanigans? Yeah, yeah, known him for a long time. Used to live just down the road from him. 
I'm just glad my nickname didn't come from him. It's one of the rare ones. Uh, yeah, that I know. From him. He, he's great at giving everybody a nickname. <laughs> yeah, yeah, his own dad. <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Order. It's it's good though when uh, when Fraser comes back onto the podcast and he just continues where he left off, kind of thing, and and straight into yeah, straight yeah. into all the nicknames and stuff like that. I was out with Baldrick, and I feel sorry for people that haven't heard like the first time. You know when. You need you need an intro. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I should pull it up and go. Okay, for anybody who doesn't doesn't know who Baldrick is, it's it's his dad. <laughs> you, you should get Baldrick on the podcast. And sit, I don't think anyone would understand oh, it. That'd be awesome. <laughs> That's a good idea. I'm always looking for guests. I should I'll speak to Fraser and say, "Hey, I want your dad on the podcast. Can you tee it up for me?" You should. He, he's got some really good stories, and he's another one of those great guys that helped me all all through the years when I was younger and taught me a lot of things. So. But he's, he's a very funny man. I always get fascinated about um, people that work with composites and, um, you know, because it's a different skill in a kind of way. And, you know, what was that first composite plane like when you when you built it? Oh, it was rough as hell. <laughs> but, you know, to start with, he only gave me the rudder mold and it was, you know, learn to make a rudder. So it took me about five rudders and he'd say, no, that was too heavy. You didn't get the paint right on that. And, It'll, it'll always be something, and once I sort of got the rudder worked out, I started on I think the canopy frame, and it was the, the fuse mold was the last mold he'd give me, so I had to sort of earn earn my way up the ranks before I was allowed to touch oh, the fuse I mold. That's a good way to go. Start with some smaller parts first and perfect it. Yeah, yeah, and I was lucky because I was doing a boat building apprenticeship, so you know got got to use some of the scraps and work, and it was a good way to trial things and do other things and teach each other stuff. You know, I was learning things in the composite boat building world and teaching Baldrick yeah. those things. And so we really got to try a lot of different solutions to problems. So you've been, you've been, uh, you've had a fair few different opportunities to keep on progressing with certain things. And of, of course you've had yeah. people that guide you. As I said, I've been very lucky. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Now when it comes to your flying nowadays, it, you know, you're, you're busy, you're traveling a lot. Uh, how yes. much flying are you getting, getting to do? I usually try and get out, once every couple of weeks uh, i've got a friend that he flies fairly often he was doing mine work so he'd be i can't remember what it was, like three weeks away and then a week back so whenever he was back i'd always try and make an effort to go out flying with him so it's kind of flying to that schedule and then if i was away you know we'd come back and whenever it lined up we'd get out for a fly but there's a really good group of guys that fly at my club and yeah i always try and get out there at least once every couple of weeks even if it's just for one or two flights just to see everyone and have a laugh it's a good Switch off from the UAV yeah, it's world. It's a good de-stressor, isn't it, getting out to the flying club? Yeah, exactly. And it's always the night before I'm charging things, going, oh, do I really want to do this? This is all too much effort. And then the next morning you look excited and you're like, oh, actually, no, going yeah. for a flight. So I'm the kind of person that I want to plan that, you know, if I know that it's going to be good weather on the weekend, I'm going to be mentally gearing myself up for that day to go flying. And that means I'll make sure that everything I'm totally and utterly organized well in advance to go flying. You know, I'm going to charge my batteries at this point in time. I've got to remember to take this, make sure my transmitter's charged. And I'm not going to <laughs> the last minute, hey, do you want to go for a fly? I'll meet you at the club now. I'm like, no, I'm not mentally ready for it. Yeah, kind yeah, of yeah. Thing. yeah I, need right. to, I need to be prepared. <laughs> and sometimes it even involves getting the simulator out, blowing out the cobwebs. You know, but, <laughs> that's yeah, dedication I, well yeah, <laughs> i just don't want to crash my models i'm not flying well i've been flying yeah. a bit more this year actually but uh now it's winter and uh winter yeah. means we don't go flying very often actually i'm in a i'm in a chat group with some friends and they're all, they're trying to organize flying um flying sessions together at the club 
and it's hilarious. I think I'm in the same chat group because oh, you're, no. you're in there's that podcast. No, right? Yeah, I'm the, that's <laughs> another one. Do you know what? Actually, I'm going to make an announcement now. I've been included in a lot of Facebook Messenger chat groups, all right, that people just included me in. And my problem is now is that there are that many chat groups and I've muted most of them because if – I was about to say, I have the same problem. They're all on mute because there's, there's just too many. many. I don't know what. I don't even know how Yeah, and, and they're all talking about the same stuff. Like I, 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 I yeah. had this saying that when people start talking about what oil they use in their fuel, you know that you're scraping the barrel. And I, I think in the last, yeah, last week, week they started talking about what oil <laughs> and I thought, okay, I'm almost out. And you know what? I think I'm going to have to exit some of these groups, but I just don't want people to th- – my biggest, biggest fear is I don't want to – because you know how when you leave the group it says, Andrew Sillers left the, the group. Right? Yeah, yeah. That's why I mute them because I don't want to feel bad, but also I've just lost interest in whatever it's about. I've got too many distractions. There's too many chat groups, and it's not because I don't like you or don't want to listen to what you have to say, but it's just distracting me too much now, and I'm losing focus. You know, like – and that's why yeah. I have to put them on mute because – and generally the chat groups are the same same two, three, four people that are talking. And so it's like, okay, create your own chat yeah. group. But, and, and you know what? You've been around the hobby for a long time. You've had every discussion known to man. We've talked about servos. We've talked yeah. about fuel. We've talked about engine tuning. We've talked about propellers. We've talked about airframes. It's all been done. And if we keep on talking about the same thing, it's just the same thing and it's getting boring now. Like – yeah, I, I exactly. Don't, I don't talk about <laughs> oil or servos with my friends anymore. Like it's like no, it's been yeah, been, it's covered been covered. So now time. I've got I'm in all these chat groups and uh, I'm just scared because I don't want people to think <laughs> like, it's because I hate them. It's just that pff, there's too many of them. There's yeah. too many of them. Yeah, there's there's the guy Joey that that's oh, yeah, one. Yeah, you know, I to support what he's doing because he's doing a great job at getting you guys into IMA. Yeah, yeah, he's a good guy. I met him for the first time at Tinkan Bay last last year and. Yeah, so I've been sort of watching what he's doing and, yeah, hoping all the new people he's getting into the hobby are going to give iMac a go and grow the numbers and where he's doing it. And, yeah, so that's where I've seen most of the groups. That's right. He's from. a great guy and he's really, really, really enthusiastic. Yeah. And and I once was really, really, really enthusiastic as well. That's the thing. That's why I haven't left them. It's like every now and then you see something, you can throw something in there. We but. need those <laughs> kind of people though because – you know how I talked earlier about the generations in iMac? They were all hinged on one to two people being really enthusiastic and motivating other people to come and do it. And then what ends up happening is yeah. often you get the rise and then it starts to fall when the enthusiasm starts to to wane because everyone's tired of it. Because it's human nature is if we do the same thing over and over again, we're going to start getting bored. And, and, and then... Yeah, so when you do see someone that passionate, you want to pump them up and support them because... They've got the passion you wish you yes. had. Yes, and and Joey's in that uh, that age bracket where he doesn't have kids and all that kind of stuff, and so he can really put his effort into it. And yep. I've just got too many things going on that are outside of model airplanes um, that means I can't I can't maintain that kind of rage in that kind of stuff. And okay, I do my own thing with the podcast and all that kind of stuff, but even then. That's managed, you know. Uh, I don't, I don't overdo it because there's other things that I've got to, you know, priorities that I've got in life as well. So, so yeah, yeah I'm really happy to see what sure. Joey's doing because, you know, that New South Wales sort of area of IMAX sort of declined a little bit, and I think um, if Joey shows that enthusiasm and gets in, this is Joey Taverer, by the way. He's been on the podcast. Have a listen to him. He was, he was great to have a chat with Joey, and he's a good pilot as well, and he loves the uh, the freestyle aerobatics thing as well, yeah. and 3D yep. and all that. So. Um, 
it's always good to, to, to have those kind of people that, that, that really do make a difference. Well, they're the people that support it and grow it and, and get, get people enthusiastic. You know, you need a certain person with that personality to, that people want to follow and want to be part of. And I think he's got that, which is awesome. I, I think the key to longevity is grabbing that passion and then recruiting other people and spreading the load of that passion. Because if we all look to someone like Joey in five years' time, if he starts to wane because his work life becomes really busy and he has kids now and family and mortgages and all sorts of other things and his wife wants him to renovate the kitchen and all this kind of stuff, then Joey's time then gets split. And then people go, oh, well, you know, now it's all starting to slide because Joey's not doing what he used to do. If they can spread the love, yeah. we see with Michael Andrisic, um down here is that you know Michael did a great job in getting it up and running. He thinks he'll tell you every day that it wasn't just him. He will tell you that he doesn't think he did anything great. Yeah, no, I mean when I when I first moved over to Melbourne, he was straight on it, saying you know there's always a plane to use and yep. whatever you know just he was always on me. You're going to come out yep. there's a comp, you know don't worry about playing. And that you know that's what you need, especially for me when I first moved over. I didn't have anything, and yeah, Michael was great at supporting that and. Seeing what he's done, you know, three, four years later now is, is yeah. really cool. And I think he's at a stage now where he's done a lot of work. He gets tired from it, and but there's other people that are starting to step up to the plate as well to share that load, which is really, really good. So the, the IMAX scene is just as healthy as ever down here in Australia, which is um, and and yeah. the standard <laughs> and the quality of the flying is really, you know, some really good pilots down here. Some of the young bucks are just progressing at such a great rate of knots. Um, and and I've you know been around them some of these young guys and seen them they're a member of the club where I fly and and to see the progression they're flying you know from the days when they would just be flying little foamies and stuff like that to now what they're doing with a hundred CCs and their skill level is just and everyone's looking at them yeah going, that's just amazing so it's a, it's a different skill and a different way of flying and I think yeah it's the IMAX stuff not better than club flying it just teaches you to fly differently and it it just presents well and you learn more skills and more control of every aspect of the model. When you think about it, it is it's a competition on precision flying and how well you you pilot that plane to a standard. And when you're always trying to work to a standard, which is you know a snap must look like this, your rolls must look like this, you know the different sequence maneuvers and whatever have to look a certain way, then you're you're striving, you're pushing yeah. yourself to attain that skill level of you know achieving that maneuver precisely and that's got to be good for you and that's why we see a lot of pilots that love freestyle aerobatics go and do a stint in imac jace ducia flew imac um ido sega flew imac ido sega flew yeah. pattern at a period of time all for freestyle yeah you've got, you've got to keep on top of it and the plane set up you know it, it takes a long time to perfect every part of setting up a model and you know people put a plane together and test fly it so they only need two clicks of trim it's like You've only touched the surface of where the setup's going to go. There's there's time and flying sequences and adjusting things by minute amounts and and all that just takes time and knowledge on where to adjust. Do you things. like tinkering with your setup? Not so much tinkering, but flying it as is, not touching it, and sort of playing with the rates. And then from there, you know, you adjust the the CFG and and slowly move things. But I'm not one for big drastic changes. Every time I fly it, I, I like to fly it for a while and each set up and sort of slowly adjust it to where I want it to be. So where do you see your aero modeling, uh, you know, future? Where do you think it's uh, heading more of the same or? I think, yeah, for me, it's, it's definitely always going to be the IMAX side, especially with my workload at the moment. 
if I can just keep keep doing the IMAC comps, you know, three or four a year, going to get out, camping out at the field, things like that, it'll, I'll be more than happy. Um, but yeah, I've, I've dabbled in a lot of different aspects of it and the IMAX stuff's always been the thing I've, I've stuck with. Well, that is true. You have become a gun. Everybody tells me how good you are at flying and, uh, to, look, anybody <laughs> that gets unlimited is a good pilot, like no matter, no matter which way you look at it. Uh, I think for, for me, the, the, the bigger, the biggest part of it is also going to the comps, you know, the, the competition's fun, but I really enjoy just having a laugh and. Yeah, I'm sure you've heard when we're on at a comp, it's kind of the comps, you know, 50% the comp and the 50% just the social part of it for me. I, I just enjoy that side of it and catching up with people. And so it's, it's yeah, it's a good community of people. A lot of people tell me that. All of my friends are in IMAC now say the same thing. It's not just about the flying. Some of them don't even practice in between events. It's it's just they like going there for the social aspect, yeah. um, which is which is part of it. Like it's a, it's a social sport. Yeah. And everyone gets something different out of it. Okay. We're up to that final question, the question that everybody wants to know the answer to, and, and it's going to be an interesting one. I don't know which way you're going to take this. I dare say it's going to be an aromatic model, but what has been your all-time favourite model that you've owned? Piper Cub. Don't give me that. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I mean, for me, the, the either the PBG 260 or the Compact 260 always always had that place. So I've just loved those two models. So. Either one of them. You've given me two. Oh, okay. You're you're one of those guests. Well, it's the same. It's the same model. It's just different version of it. <laughs> How different? Well, what are the differences between the PPG? Because PPG was the Fraser Briggs model, wasn't it? Yes, with a touch of Baldrick's uh, scale. So it it looks like a two sixty kind of, but there's something I don't know nostalgic about it that I've always loved. And then the the Comp R two sixty is just sort of the modern modern version of that that. Yeah, I've just always had a soft spot for. Okay, I do like the two hundred and sixty. I'm a big fan of the shape of the two hundred and sixty. Yeah, <laughs> that's why I went to the Extreme Flight Laser because it was the closest I could get to a big two hundred and sixty. Well, Stephen, it's been a pleasure to have you on the Flat Out RC podcast. It's amazing that we've managed to to get this this far uh, to actually get to a recording because we were juggling dates. But I really appreciate your time, and uh, I'll see you at the nationals. Yes, thank you for having me. It's it's really great to see what you're doing with the hobby and getting all these different people to do the podcast and hear everyone's perspective. About to leave, already packing. Come with me, I'm not really asking. We'll get away to a place where we don't know. Another episode of the Flat Out RC podcast done and dusted and what an episode it has been. A big thank you to Stephen Gregg for joining me Huggy, as he's known. Now we know how he got that name. Uh, gee, look, where do we go from here? More guests. Um, you know, the, the F3A World Champs is coming up. I should have mentioned it earlier. Um, coming up in August. Um, so next episode, we're going to talk a bit about that event, um, which is a big one. World Championship event here in Australia. So we'll have a deep dive into that. We'll have a special guest that's going to share some information about that event as well, a competitor. So stay tuned coming up in a couple of weeks' time for that uh, that episode. A big thank you to all of you that have uh, chosen to listen to the Flat Out RC podcast. I do get a number of messages from people from around the world saying that they do listen, and I hope you are enjoying it. If you are, don't forget to leave a good review and like and subscribe, as they say. Uh, and whilst you're in the mood for subscribing to the podcast, get onto the YouTube channel and take a look. Uh, 
it's Flat Out RC, of course, and the Facebook page and Instagram page. Get on board with the Flat Out RC movement and tell your mates about the Flat Out RC podcast. Let's grow this thing to spread the word. So, I'll be back as long as you keep on coming back. I'll talk to you in a few weeks' time. Enjoy. Hope you're getting out there and having a bit of fun with your model planes. Take my-